Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone, and Happy New Year. I hope you all had a wonderful break with your families, your loved ones, and found some downtime but because of the stress of the job. I know from my perspective, it's great to be back with you after uh, three weeks away. Uh, certainly looking forward to restarting and re-energizing the podcast here in 2022. Now, it has to be acknowledged, of course, that COVID, specifically the Omicron variant, is wreaking havoc on school openings. You know, case counts are up, hospitalizations, etc. There's a lot going on. This is an incredibly stressful time for everybody. And I know we've been saying that for close to two years now, but still, there's so much happening in both Canada and the United States and various parts of both of the countries, uh, and, and quite literally around the world, that I hope you are all finding ways to maintain both your physical and your mental health. I'm starting 2022, not surprisingly, on the road again. This week will have me going from California to Washington State, and then I'll finish up the week in Utah. Now, next week, I have a week's worth of work in Hawaii. Yes, rough, I know, someone has to do it. So I'll be able to escape the winter weather for a little bit. Um, I'm certainly really excited about that. Looking forward to that. As always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is educator and author Andrew Maxey. Andrew is the author of the recently released Elephant in the Classroom, Tracing the Complexities of Teaching by Exploring 13 Competencies and Practices. So that will be the focal point of our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner, I want to address what I see as an overcorrection in the field with our assessment practices and why trading one restriction for another is counterproductive. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Andrew Maxey is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with my one word for 2022. Now, many of you are familiar with the one word challenge, and some of you aren't. Maybe you follow the one word hashtag on Twitter or other social media platforms. I'm not exactly sure where it started, who started it, or how it became somewhat of a thing, but I like it, and I thought I might take up the challenge this year. The idea is essentially to pick one word that serves as a focus for you for the entire year and then to purposefully act upon that one word throughout the year. So I thought, why not? Let's take up that challenge. So as I was mentally brainstorming a number of different ideas and words that I thought might encapsulate what I want 2022 to be about, I kept coming back to the same word again and again. So that is clearly my word. My one word for 2022 is impact. Impact, however, in both directions. Now, the first and most obvious direction is I want to make an impact or have an even greater impact than I might already be making. Obviously, through this podcast, I want to have an impact on you, the listeners. I want to continue to challenge myself to bring you great guests, interesting and maybe at times provocative openings in Don't At Me, and of course, impact your assessment literacy through Assessment Corner. I want to have an impact also through the workshops and trainings and conferences I do, both face-to-face and online. My goal is always to professionally impact educators so they learn something, but also feel that what they've learned is accessible and doable. The last thing I want, the absolute last thing I want, 
people to think about after spending time with me is, well, that's 90 minutes or three hours or that's a day of my life I'll never get back. That's the last thing I want people to to think. Even if I make them upset, at least they're thinking and I've sort of got them in their own minds reflecting on why I'm wrong. I want to impact through my writing. I'm excited that two books I've co-authored will be published this year. I'll be finishing a manuscript for a solo book this spring. And I have two, maybe even three other book projects that will get underway this year. I'll have more on those other projects throughout 2022, but I'm really excited about it. I, I love to write. But admittedly, I went through a bit of a writing slump in 2021, or at least for most of 2021. Partly it was the busyness of returning to traveling and, and getting back to face-to-face workshops and conferences, etc. But honestly, it was more internal. I just, I wasn't energized and I'd kind of lost my mojo, so to speak. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Obviously, COVID is, is having an impact on people in ways that maybe they don't even realize. And I didn't even realize it. But in, that was 2021. As I finished 2021, I finished with some momentum and feeling very re-energized. So now I'm ready to get after it in 2022. Like I said, look, I know it's easy to say you're ready to get after it in January because, um, look, we approach all New Year's resolutions and resets with the kind of, I'm getting ready to dominate the world kind of energy. But actually, I do feel an internal shift and I feel re-energized and focused. Like I said before, I didn't I didn't realize that's how I was feeling until the shift happened to me. And then I realized, oh, okay, now that's what was happening in most of 2021. I get it now. So on the one hand, I want to have an impact. But on the other hand, and arguably more importantly, I want to be impacted. I am actively seeking content, podcasts, books, social media follows that have an impact on me. Now, listeners, you may have noticed, and you will continue to notice throughout this year, that I've been bringing guests on the podcast who have their own podcasts. That's because I'm a listener of their podcasts. They've impacted me in some way, shape, or form. They shape my thinking. So I want to talk to them, and I want to promote their work as well. I want to be impacted by my colleagues and my co-authors. I love being pushed and being forced to essentially fully articulate my thoughts, to defend them, to shape them, to reconsider them, all of those conversations. I don't mean through the hyperbolic, unsubstantiated, performative stances some take, especially on social media. You can spare me all of that crap, okay? But a real meaningful impact on me to help me continue to grow both professionally and personally. Look, after more than 30 years in education, you tend to know quite a bit. And I do through experiences and through my own professional learning. I'm not trying to deny that. But I don't know everything for sure. Not even close. No one does. I just want to be more curious and question my own mindset on on everything, including assessment. I want to continue to be open to being impacted by new research, etc. I want to be impacted by my personal and my professional relationships. I want there to be substance and meaning from them, not just frivolous sorts of, you know, lather, rinse, repeat kind of experiences we can have with our friends and our our loved ones, et cetera. I want to sort of bring the richness out of that more purposefully. And I also want to be impacted by experiences and 
Obviously, that can prove to be challenging as we're still in the midst of the pandemic, and certainly Omicron is is playing a big role in that. Uh, different events are being delayed, postponed, or rescheduled. But I really want to immerse myself in those experiences. To me, that's what life is all about. That's one of the things I love about being back on the road and traveling and going to different places is having these different experiences. Look, traveling is one way to experience it, but you can have new experiences in your own backyard, you know, different restaurants, a, a movie you might not normally watch or, uh, you know, go see a play when you're not really a theater person or uh, just read something that stretches you, you know, maybe a genre that, again, is outside your wheelhouse. Get outside of your habitual way of thinking about who you are. You don't have to travel to get those experiences. Certainly, that's a great way to do it, but but there's lots of ways we can push ourselves. And I I, I know in some ways all of this could be interpreted as, uh-oh, Tom is having an existential crisis in real time right here on the podcast. You know, seek experiences, find meaning. Uh, what's this all about? I can assure you that's not what's happening here. Experiences bring me to life. They energize me. And I know, again, I'm not alone in that. Having an impact has always been my professional goal and in my professional sites. And it's the reason my career progressed the way it did. I went from a teacher to administration to have a larger impact. I went from administration to central office to have an even larger impact. And I left my central office job to do what I do now to have an even bigger impact. So from the perspective of, of myself, it's, it's not a new goal to have an impact but more of a re-energizing of that goal. But to be impacted is new for me in terms of intentionality. To actively seek moments and experiences, whether they be small, medium, or large. I want to seek those experiences and those people and that content that impacts me. That, that has me more energized than anything. So, so that's my one word and, and my goal. And I'm going to do my best to keep track of how I was impacted through 2022. And I'll report back to you in December, maybe even report back halfway in June, just to let you know what some of my experiences have been and what or who has impacted me as the year unfolds. Um, we are still in incredibly tough times, as I've mentioned right now. And I have the utmost empathy uh, for those of you working in schools and school districts, which is likely the majority of you. Um, we've got delayed starts, we've got gradual returns and all of that. It suddenly feels like uncertainty is the only thing we can be certain of. But despite that, maybe you can find a focus. Maybe you can find your one word. Maybe a word that energizes you and focuses you on what matters the most to you. Something. Find something. It's... It's easy to be consumed with COVID. And, and to a point, it's unavoidable and it's necessary. But maybe, just, just maybe, your one word can reinvigorate you, if that's what you need, to make 2022 feel different, even if what's happening around us right now still feels the same. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. 
Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Andrew Maxey. Andrew is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Tuscaloosa City Schools in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Roll Tide, of course. Andrew definitely has a few passions in education, effective grading practices, middle-level practices informed by the deep knowledge of young adolescents, and of course, educational leadership. He is especially vocal about the complexity of teaching and the ongoing deprofessionalization of teaching. And to that end, Andrew is the author of the recently released Elephant in the Classroom, Tracing the Complexity of Teaching by Exploring 13 Competencies and Practices, and that is going to be our focus for today's conversation. So, Andrew, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's an honor. Uh, It's great to see you, uh, Andrew. It's great to reconnect with you. We haven't touched base in a while. Happy New Year, of course, and... uh, And congratulations on the book. Um, I want to spend our time today kind of highlighting for listeners some of the big ideas that you write about, and I think this will give listeners a, a, a yet another reason why they should uh, seek out the book and, and purchase it and give it a read, because I think it has uh, just a, it's very thorough uh, and yet accessible uh, in its approach. So let's 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 jump right in. Um, I know that it's your contention uh, in the introduction of the book. Uh, you write, "quote The problem is not that we don't." know enough about teaching, but that we don't have a frame for the whole of what we know, that we don't have a map, end quote. So why do we need a map? And what issues do you think perpetuate in education if we don't have that map? Uh, uh, Thank you for that question, Tom. It's a good one. Um, The reason I wrote the book, the reason I think we need a map in education is uh, we know, we know what's involved in teaching. We know uh, there's entire fields of study and we're, we're getting really deep into the weeds in really everything there is to know about teaching, that's educational research, and it's very valuable to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have a unified theory or, or map or visual of the whole of teaching. Right. I think that's problematic specifically because teaching, the act and the process of teaching, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about the whole job, I'm just talking about the act and process of teaching itself. Right. So car duty is not part of what we're talking about, that, but you will <laughs> definitely do that if you're a teacher. Right. Um, so th- th- this thing is so complex that if we don't have a shared vision, a, sh- a shared picture of what this is, it allows us to continue adding on to that complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who are educational decision makers, administrators, lawmakers, uh, whoever they may be, um, they know a lot or, or, or for administrators, probably all of what teaching is. But if you don't hold that complexity in your head as you're making decisions, it's easy to add to the complexity. Right. Um, and, and that to me is a, an excellent reason to say we, we need a common picture. We need a map of this thing um, so that we can use it as a lens through which to make decisions. Mm-hmm. I think it does have utility in other ways uh, for pre-service teachers, for beginning teachers, um, in the same way that a, a, a map for travel is useful to you. All the roads are on the map, but you're mm-hmm. only on one road at a time when you're traveling. But when you're on that road, you need the the context of the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so less of a way to hold people accountable or beat them up that they haven't mastered the whole, seeing the whole, 
while you are focusing on developing your skill in a particular area is valuable. Right. So I, I, I think it, it's important, uh, an analogy that's in the book that I've used before is, you know, it's like uh, teachings this forest and we're really good at examining leaves and branches uh, and we're, but we're so focused on them that, that we've, we've forgotten the expanse of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that perspective, I think, is important to the current health of the profession, which I, I contend, uh, along with many others, is very much under threat, very much, I believe, in doubt. Um, so that, that's why I think we need a map. Let me pick up on that because something I mentioned that you have said, and I mentioned this in the introduction, and 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 when you said holding people accountable and beating people up, uh, often I'm I'm assuming you're referring to like standardized testing data and things like that. Can you can you expand on this idea of what you mean when you say the deprofessionalization yeah. of teaching? Yeah. Uh, what what I, I think I know what you're getting at, but just for our listening audience, can, let's talk about what you what sure. what is the context for that? What do you mean by that? Um, so first of all, I would uh, point your listeners to folks who have been doing this a lot longer than me, who have studied this work, including Linda Darling-Hammond, um, in, including the folks who have studied what works, uh, what systems of education that are successful around the world look like. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Ingersoll is a researcher who has uh, laid out the definition of a profession and cross-referenced that with teaching and says Mm -hmm. uh, teaching meets all of the criteria of a profession, but some of the uh, markers of a profession uh, uh, are being stripped away from teachers, such as autonomy, Mm -hmm. uh, social standing, um, and compensations in the mix there as well. And the, the problem isn't that teaching is complex. The problem is the contrast between the complexity and those benefits that other professions enjoy that are either denied teachers or are under granted to mm-hmm. teachers. Uh, so the deprofessionalization looks like a continuous adding to the responsibilities. Um, and, and some of this is in the book, but you've got to think about all of the thing that teachers, things that teachers have to do that really don't have anything to do with teaching. Um, they're wonderful things to do, but in other countries, uh, schools don't attend to the mental health of students because someone else is doing it. Schools don't need to attend to, uh, or even to a large degree, the health of children because someone else is doing it. Right. Uh, but every educator is a mandatory reporter as well as should be. But if you see as more and more responsibilities pile on uh, individually, they're perfectly reasonable. But when taken together and then held in contrast to the rights and privileges that other professions and professionals enjoy, that's what is significantly contributing uh, to this erosion of the professionalization of teaching and so it becomes no wonder that it is difficult to retain accomplished educators in the profession and to recruit young people to the profession. Is it just a, in your 
from your perspective and your opinion, is this just a, a particular perspective that people, the general public has about education, about teaching? It seems that whenever something ails society, it's we need to teach that in school. School in right. the school seems to always be the answer. Right. And yet simultaneously, or almost there's this dichotomy of we need the schools to do more, and yet we don't trust you and we, we deprofessionalize you. From your perspective, is that where that's coming from? Uh, my perspective is that that is a significant contributor to it, but I, I hang the entire thing on that source. Right. Um, we uh, we have a profession that's uh, set up to move in this direction. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I, I think it'd be very unwise to miss the original design of public education, at least in the United States, uh, mm -hmm. that it has always been ma majority female. Um, you, you, you can't overlook that right. the beginning assumption was we can pay less. We can right. uh, uh, have this status. So when you begin to add on the historical design of the profession with this increasing expectation, mm -hmm. uh, you, you arrive where we are today. Yeah, there's roughly, uh, I think it's in both Canada and the United States, I think roughly 75% of all educators are are women. And I don't think you can overlook that at all. I think you're, you're spot on with that. And speaking of sort of society, of course, in our current context of the pandemic, and of course, we're in various stages of the pandemic still, we have seen a sharp uptick in our focus on relationships and developing, you know, SEL competencies in our learners. Teachers often assert, especially I see this on social media, that it's all about relationships, that students mm. have to Maslow before they can bloom. And, and look, I don't, I don't want to downplay the importance of relationships, far from it. And I know you yourself talk a lot about mm -hmm. how important it is to know your students. However, you also contend that content knowledge matters, which I think gets downplayed in, in a lot of different circles. So again, from your perspective, why does subject expertise content knowledge matter? It, it it seems overly simple. Um, right. I would contend that you can't teach something you don't know. That's that's not what teaching is. Mm -hmm. That um, you can possibly supervise someone while they learn a thing that you don't know, mm -hmm. but I cannot cause you to learn a thing I don't know. Now, um, I, I perhaps could could push you to a level of confidence beyond my own. Uh, but sub subject area expertise does matter. Um, that's that's the nature of teaching. Um, so, uh, to to your illustration, I, I think those those claims are fair enough in the context of systems of accountability and responsibility that imply that only outcomes matter. Um, when is a school held accountable for relationships? When do we say, you know, what the school is is going above and beyond in producing strong relationships and social emotional etc um no we use that as a uh, uh, okay but when we label a school failing we would say mm -hmm. oh but they produce good relationships instead of saying here's a school that is we have documented is outstanding in building relationships you know it, it, it's not an equal playing field so i'm arguing on behalf uh, on in defense of the teachers who say and perhaps they literally are saying it's all about relationships but i think the real message is relationships matter just as much mm -hmm. as 
the uh, setting out of knowledge for students to pick up um, and, and um, the students are, we know for sure that students are less likely to learn a lot or to learn deeply from someone uh, with whom they have a no positive relationship or indeed a, a negative relationship. Um, but you, 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 there are all kinds of examples of relationships in the world around us that are very positive that do not include effective teaching. Right. So it, there, it's essentially inseparable. And if we're discussing any kind of uh, mental pendulum swing to if we can just do relationships, well, that's the whole battle. No, of course not. That's that's not right at all. Um, indeed, that's the argument of the book is that teaching right. is so very complex that if you remove and you know the quotes from some of the teachers that participated in the original study if you remove any part of teaching by definition that's not teaching anymore that's a right. that's an attempt at teaching um, right. uh, yeah yeah knowledge matter ab or subject matter absolutely is important to this process yeah it's my my revision to the assertion of maslow before they can bloom is to maslow through bloom that you build relationships through that learning experience because you know as you as you contend and we all kind of know of course is that learning is the center of the experience and so we can build relationships on the periphery which is important in the early stages to get to know learners as you say get to know your students but i think ultimately the students find out what what matters to us what we prioritize and how important their learning is is at the center of the experience and i think that's something that we all have to kind of keep in mind uh as as we as we think about the importance of subject knowledge and and i would i'm going to maybe put words in your mouth but to, and correct me if i'm in, if i'm wrong here but when you talk about subject expertise or content knowledge you're not just talking about sort of content memorization, but you would also be contending that you have to know something about critical thinking. You'd have to know something about 21st century learning, you know, collaboration, et cetera, so that you can teach right. it. Would that, that's a fair assumption on our part, on, on your, your yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and that, that does bleed over into, mm -hmm. you know, uh, pedagogical expertise, for example. Right. And, and <laughs> even in the book, when I say 13 competencies and practices, it would be a mistake to think that you can draw bright lines between many of them. Right. Um, when you talk about instruction, mm -hmm. where's the line between student engagement and uh, uh, implementing an activity, for example. Um, right. So it, when you pull the thing apart to examine it, you have to uh, understand that it's not, you know, it, it, it's not as if it's modular and put together. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's ways of understanding this very complex thing. So mm -hmm. it, it, yes, absolutely. Content knowledge is if I, if I'm a mathematics instructor, I have to understand the mathematics. Mm -hmm. I also have to understand the ways in which students make sense of mathematical thinking. Right. And then so it, it, it begins to blend together with mm -hmm. with what that means. Um, I, I think what we're saying is um, not any warm body will do. Like right, right, teaching right. is a very demanding, a, yeah. a very specialized uh, profession and and so it matters that you know the thing that you're uh, 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 trying to convey to students and yet we know in so many uh, school districts that this really puts some teachers in a tough position because 
you know, as they're fulfilling contracts and they're teaching subjects that might be outside of their area of expertise to fulfill the terms of their contract, they, it puts some teachers in a position where they're teaching subjects that they might not be as familiar with. And so school districts and principals really doing what they can to ensure that people are at least in the vicinity of their expertise. So there's a, maybe an acceleration of that knowledge. Now we know that um, content knowledge in its broadest sense, if that was all we needed, uh, then of course, university professors would probably be the most effective teachers uh, on the planet, but they are often not. And I, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, uh, but for example, some of the worst teachers I've ever had in my entire life were in my professors in my undergraduate program. Now, simultaneously, these same people were some of the most brilliant people I've ever been around. Uh, I could listen to them for hours, theorize about different ideas. You know, I was a history major, so talking about history, uh, I could listen to them for hours. But actual teaching, uh, you know, not so much. Uh, so. What does the research tell us? Uh, you mentioned this just a moment ago. What does the research tell us about the importance of developing our pedagogical expertise? What's right, the research yeah. say on that? First of all, um, I want to creep out there on that limb with you and not call any specific people out, but nope. say um, my experience, in fact, was in a couple of cases, individuals who you should assume had the best grasp of the way teaching works in their own practice right. did not exhibit this, uh, were unable to provide, to model. I remember my undergraduate, there was a moment where I'm pretty sure the professor realized they were doing the exact thing they were telling us was poor practice and to avoid doing and mm -hmm. to kind of pause for a moment and kind of had an aha moment and then played it off and moved on. Your question though, um, the research is pretty clear that um, interacting with young people in a room isn't the whole of teaching, that that the, the things you do matter and the way you do those things matter. And there's no lack of opportunities for teachers to hone their skill in teaching, in instructional practices, in pedagogy. And so pedagogy is more than just instructional strategies or approaches. It's also having a grasp of, I mentioned earlier, knowing the way in which students understand a subject, uh, anticipating perfectly predictable misconceptions about a topic or a skill uh, that students are supposed to learn. And the skill is understanding students. I'll give you an example. I'm very passionate about the middle level. So middle level educators need to have at least a basic understanding of young adolescents yeah. and how the science of the change that occurs in young adolescents and brain research at that age, how that impacts and how that interplays with learning at that age. Uh, in that specific setting, there's a, there are a lot of stereotypes that are placed on middle level, on middle school and middle schoolers. And those stereotypes are based on observations that ascribe meaning incorrectly. So the observations are not wrong. Yes, they're loud. Yes, they're impulsive, etc. But 
it lacks an understanding and it jumps to a conclusion that says basically the job of a middle school is to keep the kids from killing each other so they can keep learning in high school. Um, <laughs> instead of saying, this is what we know about how the brain works at this age. So now we know our students in that way. Now we know the individual students in the group. And now we have a knowledge of the, the content that we've just talked about, which brings us to, therefore, what modes of learning are most likely to bring the students from where they are and what they know about the subject to where the learning target is. Mm -hmm. So that whole synthesizing of these different types of understanding that we have into a plan for what to do, uh, that's, a, that's a deep understanding of, of pedagogy and it's not singular at all. There, yeah. there, so you, you can talk about uh, lots of different approaches to teaching and learning. Um, and I think the pitfall is when someone tries to imply that any one of them is, you know, the silver bullet or the magic, um, right. instead of saying, how, how do I have this uh, range of tools, instructional tools, and I'm really, really skillful at matching the content and the learner, the set of learners I have, and the goal and, and producing learning that actually advances students knowledge and attainment closer to the learning target yeah it's interesting you you mentioned middle level uh, i share your passion for middle level uh, i spent about half my career in in terms of my time in the school system working with middle level students in middle schools you know recently i've had some interesting experiences with middle school teachers in professional learning situations because i've made mention that middle schools aren't random, that middle schools are schools that were developed to address the particular stage of development of young adolescents between the ages of 11 and 14. And it somewhat surprises me, and this is not their fault because they're newer to the profession. Uh, it's, it's the collective fault that they don't know that, that some Correct. of the teachers I've worked with are kind of, they've never thought of it that way before. The, I think their perspective was middle schools were just meant to break up the flow, <laughs> the flow of, of, you know, they're, they're a little too old for elementary and a right. little too young for a high school, but they didn't really know why. That's not the majority. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But it's been interesting to mm -hmm. hear teachers react to that assertion that these schools are built for that stage of development and not knowing that. So somewhere along yeah. the way, that message has been lost. And I suppose as we go on in decades, away from the genesis of middle schools, mm -hmm. we start to see that that message kind of gets diluted and people don't realize that that's, that's the focus. Um, right. you, uh, you write on page 69 of the book, I'm going to quote you here, it's a bit of a long quote, but I, I really love this. So you write on page 69 that all students learn more deeply when they engage in authentic experiences. Mm -hmm. Teachers should design and provide these experiences for all students, including those who receive special education services and who are behind in terms of grade level learning goals. Uh, instead of only to students classified as gifted or accelerated in their learning, end quote. So the question that I have to you that often comes to mind when you say we've got to engage uh, students in these authentic learning experiences, and I think this is a particularly important question for somewhat novice teachers. Sure. And the question is how? How do you create these authentic experiences for such a wide range of learners in a classroom? Absolutely. Um, uh, so I'd, one thing to start with is, in education, we're really good at um, beating ourselves up for not doing all of the things. 
Like we have to hit every target and every uh, standard and substandard and all of those things. So this uh, we've talked about the importance of understanding the content area. Uh, content area standards are a very healthy way of saying this is the educational attainment that we're aiming for. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but for teachers, uh, understanding that and then tagging in the discussion we've had about pedagogy, what's the best, what's the, be the, the, the approach that has the best chance of moving students in that direction, planning uh, multiple opportunities for students to learn can be done in the context of understanding your students well. If you have a good understanding, and I'm not talking about having 120 middle school students and having 120 different plans, but what we're talking about is, uh, are you keeping track of your observations of how students and groups of students within your charge uh, tend to thrive, tend to uh, learn better? And how can you provide these opportunities to, to students? And some of this can be at the micro level. So I had this experience um, just a few months ago. I, I can't even remember the exact context, but some somehow I, I, I've just finished a, a, a graduate program. So maybe it was in one of those classes, but the, the purpose of algebra came up. And I had never heard that. And I'm near the end of a graduate degree. And my reaction was actually anger. And I said, I never have thought that I'm good at math. I've always disliked math. And, I, and you know, my reaction in the moment was, why could this have not been explained to me and taught to me when I was supposed to be learning algebra way back when I was a teenager? Instead, I was taught how to solve problems right. to, to solve equations. Mm -hmm. And so for me, at the micro level, providing authenticity in the learning at the micro level, the reason why we're doing X is explained to students. And then you can also provide authenticity in the macro level, things like project-based learning, problem-based learning. So these really large enterprises that bring meanings to meaning to students, but I, I, I want to come to this point. You know, this is not this is not to put pressure on teachers. This is right. to say the learning has to have meaning. And sure, your your state, your your district, whoever uh, said so. Therefore, it must be. But mm -hmm. from a philosophical point what's the point of pursuing learning that doesn't have meaning? Right. So make sure that your students understand why. The best question a student can ask you is why. Mm -hmm. Why are we learning this? So right. don't be irritated by that. Preemptively explain and help them understand. And trust me, kids, you'll you'll need this in 10 years. It's not acceptable to to, right. uh, to a student, right? Like that, that or because I said so. Um, so that to me, so authenticity can look a lot of different ways, but it can also, it doesn't have to mean planning huge product projects and 
a different project for every different kid. It, mm -hmm. it can be a living practice in what you do to say, my students have to see my discipline as something that's alive, not a thing that's sitting there and holds still for you to learn and then you're done with. If you're teaching science, I mean, the field of science is alive and moving around, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we get in, under the, in there and have scientific thinking? And then you could talk about other subject areas as well, like right. make help kids make meaning of what they're learning that that will, you know, spark. I mean, I, I wanted to say every student, but that is really powerful. That's going to bring a lot of your students into the process of learning with you. Okay. And, and let, let me shoot a question at you be here because I think this is an, this is a question I get frequently. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I'm curious as to what your response would be. Um, I get the question, so I'll phrase it to you, Andrew, listen, it's unrealistic, especially at the youngest, younger grade levels where students are forced against their will into the subjects they take. They don't have a lot of choice in middle level. Sure. They don't have a lot of choice. You get into the upper grades of high school, they have more choice. So we're putting students into all of these subjects. It's unrealistic to think that students are going to have an authentic passion or keen interest in every single subject that they have. So if a student yeah. says to you, look, I'm not that interested in science or I'm not that interested in English language arts, so I don't really enjoy mathematics. What's the answer to the question of create, how do we connect them in terms of relevance? I get that question a lot. Curious as to what your yeah. answer would be. How do we help learning become relevant for those students who don't really have a passion for the subject that they're, they're, they're in? I love it. Let's tie back to a discussion we just have. As a teacher, uh, how deep is your content knowledge in that area um, with no blame to anyone? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can see the putting across of a subject in a way that's not true to the, to the living. I, I, look, I, I, name a subject. There's some awesomeness about that. Mm -hmm. How can you bring the wonder of the thing to the student? Um, example, I work with our school libraries here and we're, we're trying to really do good work around building cultures of reading, engagement and reading. Um, something I heard, I, I'm pretty sure I stole it from someone, but something I say all the time is there's no such thing as a reluctant reader. There are only readers who just aren't interested in the books we've put in front of them. We haven't figured out yet what they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. So if the learning becomes a search for passion, you know, science is huge. Maybe you just don't like the science we've done so far. Math is amazing. I love geometry. I did not like the other ones. I did not like, now I know it's that whole algebraic field and I'm salty yeah. that I wasn't made passionate about it. Yeah. So th this to me is part of being a teacher is also opening the eyes of students to the wonder of what they're seeing. That that knowledge and the application of knowledge is is an incredible thing. It is so powerful to do. And have we empowered students to take that, take it where it, it might lead them? Um, and, and the goal is not to produce mathematicians or readers or, or yes, readers, not, not, not maybe writers and award-winning uh, producers of content, but, but it is equipping and, and setting on a path that says, uh, 
perhaps this is for you and what is the how can you engage with this that that's just a random or sorry a rambling answer oh <laughs> <laughs> how helpful that is to the yeah. elementary teacher who yeah. has a kid that has decided they just won't they, they they don't want anything to do with writing right um but i i'm firmly convinced that if you persist and help a child find their passion that's the key and here's the thing be like edison if you don't find the kids passion but you help them be sure of the things they can cross off the list the next person might help them find right. the thing so persist and continue to help the kids say well then let's try another thing and don't you know don't take it personally that they don't love the thing that is in in your part of the process yeah. Reminds me, uh, when I answer that question for people, I often remind them of what Steve Jobs used to always say, that the consumers don't know what they want until we show it to them. And yeah. to pick up on that parallel, I, I, I think you're spot on with the idea that it's possible that many students aren't passionate about science because we haven't shown them enough about what science is and, yeah. and it, its breadth. And, and so ask them, talk to them, you know, find out what they're curious about and reveal to them what science or math or mm -hmm. English language arts or whatever the subject is, reveal to them the full depth and breadth of what you can. And you'll undoubtedly find something that they're curious about. I want to finish up, Andrew, today with assessment and grading. As you know, uh, Andrew is very near and dear to my heart. I know it is for you as well. And I think that's probably how we became connected years ago was our shared passion for assessment and especially uh, grading. I know it's a passion for you. You say uh, in the book that evaluation is an important part of all of the processes intended to make, produce, or nurture something. And you go on to say, and I, and I absolutely love this, unless any outcome will do, it is essential to keep track of where the current performance is in relation to the goal. The entire academic purpose of teaching is to advance all students to learning goals, monitor the state of progress toward those goals is an integral part of teaching itself, end quote. One of the irritants I find right now for me currently is the dismissiveness and quite honestly, the wrongheadedness and the performative way that summative assessment, many educators talk about summative assessment and listeners, you've heard me rant about this many times in the past. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, Andrew, I, I think this is one of those questions where I think I know how you're going to answer, but hoping you can articulate this for our listeners. What for you would be the ideal balanced assessment system in a classroom? All right, so uh, forgive me, I was a horrifying sports analogy, but today especially, but for the long for the longest time, effective coaches use information to make decisions. I'm avoiding using the word data because in education, when we say that, we mean standardized test scores. Mm -hmm. But coaches use information, and and before there was technology to assist this coaches would remember a tendency of a player or something they have noticed and patterns. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we should be talking about in a class. So my ideal uh, uh, balance or the ideal, ideal system here looks like from the beginning, we're very clear about what the learning target is and what attaining it might look like. So this is how we'll know it when we see it. And then we have to say, where are we starting from? Student by student, and students need to be involved in that process. Come back to the sporting thing. A, a, a basketball player knows they've missed a free throw. They're not going to argue that, no, I didn't, right? So 
where is my proficiency in the goal? Uh, and then as we do the things we need to do to gain competence in the, in the knowledge or the skill that we're pursuing, along the way, we notice progress. So I, I like the word, and I've been using, recently been using the word noticing. We need to notice what's happening because that implies that the purpose of doing that is to ensure that we're on track. It, there's nothing punitive about that. It's, it's knowing that we're still on the trajectory and we're progressing towards where we need to go. Um, we also need to give a nod to the importance of understanding that um, learning needs to be the constant, not time. Because we say on this day, students knew or did not know, have progressed or haven't progressed. Instead of saying, this is the learning attainment, are you moving towards that? Um, as opposed to who has hit this and now let's do another thing. Um, so to me, a continuous commitment, a practice where uh, individual students progression towards the learning goal is noticed by the student and the teacher and uh, decisions about what to do next are based on those things. And then, of course, at the end, we we record how that went. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's a record. And at, at, sure, at, on this day, this is the level of attainment. So I'm not saying you should be able to go back to your first grade records and correct them when you're in sixth grade or, or change them. You know, you preserve the record. But even then, it should be less about judgment and more about observation. As of today, this is where the student stands in relationship to a learning goal. Yeah. It reminds me of something I say often in, in workshops and conferences, et cetera, is that what we report about student learning should be, and this is just a bit of a play on words, but it should be the cumulative impact of instruction and learning, not what the student has accumulated over mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. that in this moment we accurately report. And your thoughts about time you know, and learning, you know, one being the constant, one will vary. It's an interesting dichotomy that often emerges in education where we know that some students need longer to learn, mm -hmm. not just take longer to learn, but mm -hmm. actually need longer to learn. And yet in so many of our systems, and, and this has obviously improved by comparison decades ago, but this idea sure. that some students need longer to learn and yet you are disadvantaged in your grade book or, or on the report card if you don't learn fast enough. And right. uh, so it's an interesting dynamic that emerges. Andrew, I know I could talk to you about assess. We could do a whole uh, <laughs> a whole episode on, Absolutely. On, on assessment. Maybe we'll do that down the road. Two questions left for you, Andrew, as we finish up today. And these are questions that I ask uh, everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one. And you can take this in any direction uh, that you'd like. Uh, but educationally speaking, the question is, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Uh, so literally keeping me up at night is, um, Tom, I've got to be honest here and I'm going to, I'm going to be a little dark. I, uh, I believe that, uh, public education is in, in a lot of trouble. I believe, in fact, I say to my close colleagues that I, I hope very much to be wrong, but I, I think that a crash is inevitable at this point. Um, 
what would that what that looks like is not exactly clear to me but consider for example something you mentioned earlier uh, our inability to find qualified people to hold teaching positions right. i'm hearing uh, stories of schools this year who are flipping to virtual uh, settings not because of health concerns but because they can't find enough adults to safely supervise the kids we're not just talking about teachers we're talking about substitutes and other positions um imagine a school where and with great respect to organizations like teach for america uh, imagine entire school of teachers who don't intend to stay in the profession um, we, 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 we hear stories of students who go years uh, without ever having a certified math teacher and they're progressing from grade to grade and have never, you know, from seventh grade through 11th grade, never once had a certified teacher. Mm -hmm. That's why I wrote the book is for us to say, we have to address the state of public education and Maybe I'm wrong, but I think the issue that's at the heart of all of it is the adults. None of great Tom grading doesn't matter if there are no adults here. If, if we don't have accomplished teachers to dig into their practice and grow their practice, it doesn't matter. No. I work on summer learning here and we, we do a lot of great work with that. Doesn't matter if we don't have people to do it. And so the question is, how can we get really, really serious about about us as a as a profession? I think that so recruit and retain is on everyone's lips right now. And I've got a hard word for the profession. I think that it looks to me like a lot of our recruit and retain discussions and enterprises are about finding the right shade of lipstick. I'd like for us to figure out how to stop being a pig. Um, when can we wake up to that? So for me, part of that and the heart of that is how do you professionalize teaching? Because the evidence from other countries is that if you professionalize teaching, all of the other outcomes that we're seeking from education are possible. Mm -hmm. Professional educators can produce what we want for public education. Um, I'm oversimplifying, but mm. I, I think that. So what keeps me up at night is that this profession will break before I can retire. And that's, I, I really hope I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm fighting day and night to make my own fear not come true. Right. But it, it, uh, I'm, I apologize to your listeners. That's very bleak, but that's what keeps me up at night is the fear that uh, my grandchildren and my oldest is just a freshman in high school. So many years from now, right. uh, my grandchildren may not reasonably be able to get a good education from a public school. Yeah. yeah. You know, the goal here is not to gloss over things. Uh, and yes, it's happy new year, but we also have to stay focused on, we have to stay focused on, on things that are important. I don't think your yeah. fears are unfounded. We all collectively hope you are wrong. 
Um, but at the same time, I think you are taking, you know, an honest look at the profession. So last question for you, Andrew, uh, it's a question about uh, success. It's yeah. a question, again, I ask everybody, and it's a simple question that says, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success, how would you answer them? I, I believe that every person um, is designed through your upbringing, your life experiences, you're designed for a thing, to accomplish a thing. And just like this is an analogy, not saying one is the other, in the same way that you can use a tool to do a thing that it's not designed for, mm -hmm. but it works best when it's doing the thing it's designed for. Uh, to me, success is finding out what you were designed to do and then throwing yourself into that and your best is good enough and less than your best is is not okay you owe your best to to the rest of the humans mm -hmm. and you do not need to be feel guilty or or feel bad about any kind of it, it, there's no relative thing here it's about you what you were designed to do are you doing that thing and are you doing your best at it if your answer to that is yes that's success i love that i love that idea of finding out what you're good at and and your contribution uh to 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 the rest of society and and what your contribution is to that i, I absolutely love that listeners you know that normally as we finish up an interview I usually give out the guest's Twitter handle, but something interesting I know about Andrew that I think you'll find interesting as well is that Andrew actually grew up in Nigeria and your Twitter handle is interesting as well, Andrew. So I'm going to let you uh, tell the, you know, quickly tell listeners the story behind uh, your Twitter handle and maybe just a little bit about your background and, and how your Twitter handle came to be. Sure. Yeah. So I did, I did grow up in Nigeria. My Twitter handle is Izibo underscore. Let me spell it. E-Z-I-G-B-O underscore. Uh, so uh, I grew up in Nigeria and and I'm going to say spoke. I don't have enough practice to say I'm still fluent in Igbo, one of the main languages of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. uh, but Izibo basically means truth or uh, it could mean uh, one who is true, like both. So there's this honesty feel about it, but it's also about... Um, like your metal, like being someone who is reliable, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I seek to be uh, someone who doesn't shy away from being honest, but um, telling the truth in ways that are productive, um, not using the truth to hurt others. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, I love that in your background. And certainly as someone who's been to Nigeria, uh, I just really appreciate uh, culturally um, the country. And, and um, I can only imagine your experience growing up there, uh, what, what that might have must, must mean to you. It's clearly um, impactful still to this day, for sure, and shapes who you are and the thoughtfulness yes. with which you approach the profession. Listeners, you can also find Andrew on LinkedIn as well. So just we'll have links to the uh, to the Twitter handle as well as Andrew's uh, LinkedIn page. We'll put those in the show notes. Hey, Andrew, listen, it was great catching up with you today. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Tom, thank you so much for the invitation. It was my pleasure. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address what I see as an overcorrection in the field that could inadvertently result in shifting one restriction for another. 
Now, this overcorrection is well-intentioned, but it is misguided and could end up simply leaving a different cohort of students feeling constrained and compliant. I want to begin the exploration of this overcorrection with an assertion. This assertion might represent a somewhat unpopular perspective, but for those of you who know me, or at least know me somewhat, or even just know me through this podcast, you know that I don't assert assessment positions just to gain popularity. There's already way too much of that out there, so you don't need me to be another contributor to that. My goal is actually never to assert my opinion, unless it's an implementation choice where there are several correct options to choose from. Then I'll say, well, this is what I would do. My goal is to assert positions that are defensible, and by defensible, I mean they align with what the research tells us. Okay, here's the potentially unpopular assertion in 2022. You ready? Tests in their traditional format, are still a valid assessment method. Yep, it's still okay to create a stapled packet that tests student proficiency. Okay, let me first talk about the overcorrection that I see, and then I'll make a few points about the tests. The overcorrection I see is trading one restriction for another. It is certainly in vogue right now to be dismissive of traditional assessments and favor more project-based or inquiry-based learning and assessment experiences. And I'm all for that. Those of you who know me know that I challenge traditional grading and traditional assessment uh, methods and practices all the time. But in our haste to be cutting edge or to outflank everyone on how progressive we are, we don't realize we might be trading one exclusion for another. Now, again, for those of you who've been longtime listeners or know me from PD sessions, you know the word that I often use is expansive. That, for example, we need to be culturally expansive in our work. Uh, That's something we've talked about, uh, not just myself, but we've especially talked about that with many guests on the podcast. Well, we also need to be expansive with our assessment practices. Expansive is inclusive. It is literally an expansion of our assessment methods. And my worry right now is that we are, in some circles, just trading one restriction for another. Now, it will be very easy to misunderstand what I'm about to say, so I I want you to listen closely. I absolutely love the work that so many are doing with project-based learning or inquiry-based approaches to learning. And I am 100% supportive of the idea of students being able to show what they know in a variety of ways. There's nothing about that that I don't support. But I want you to consider this potential scenario that I that I don't think admittedly is all that common, but we can't prematurely dismiss it and not understand its potential. Now here's a scenario that I want you to think about and, and think to yourself, how would you respond in this situation? You as the teacher ask the students after presenting sort of the unit and here's the goals and here's the learning outcomes, here's the standards, et cetera, and so on. You say to your students, how would you like to demonstrate your learning for this unit? Total agency, they get to create the assessment experience. They get to tell you how they're going to show what they know. And in response to that question, one or a few students respond by saying, you know what, just give me a test. How would you react to that? Would you try to redirect them to something else 
And if so, why? If students are supposed to be at the center and they get to decide, but then when they decide, we dismiss them and redirect them, then, then what are we doing? Now, of course, there are some standards and learning outcomes where a test would be an inappropriate assessment method. And in that case, the redirection would be warranted. And you might even consider pre-correcting by providing sort of here are some choices uh, that you can have that are most applicable for the assessment. But honestly, the majority of standards and outcomes can be tested. If a teacher declares, I only do PBL, then how do you distinguish between engagement and compliance? Just because they're following the PBL or the inquiry process, that doesn't mean they're engaged either. Again, I'm not saying that that scenario is common, but my worry is that we overcorrect so far that we become dismissive of a different assessment method. Dumping on or ditching that test has merit, and it is true that many of our colleagues, and maybe even you, have become and maybe became overly reliant on the stapled packet of test questions. So the push to introduce other ways for students to demonstrate their learning is the right one. But like so many things, we can't help ourselves and we take it maybe a little bit too far. We've certainly done this with feedback and longtime listeners will, will know what I'm about to say. The research says that grades and scores can interfere with a student's willingness to keep learning. So we end up taking it one slight step too far and turning that into give a student a grade and the learning stops. The research has never shown causation, but that didn't stop us from going too far. Now we get into a situation where some would assert that five letters of the alphabet represent all that ails the education system, please. We did the same thing or are doing the same thing with tests. We couldn't just stop at, hey, let's expand our assessment repertoire to include more options for assessments. Nope, we couldn't do that. We had to dump all over tests and even with no research support, suggest that tests are an invalid or inappropriate way to assess. And that is simply not true. The only tests educators and the never test educators are essentially the same, both closed-minded, Again, close-minded about different methods, of course, but nonetheless, both close-minded. Just like the grade everything and the never grade folks are essentially two sides of the same coin. They don't realize it, but they are. They're close-minded about different aspects of grading, but still close-minded nonetheless. It has to stop. Tests are real and they are valid just like any other assessment method. They have limitations, but they are a valid assessment method or format. Our society is filled with tests. So many professional certifications and licensings happen via tests. You think of the medical exam, the bar exam, just a couple of examples. Trading one assessment restriction for another is counterproductive, and honestly, it's just wrong. Your assessment methods, of course, have to be the right fit for the intended learning goal and we can create a more expansive approach to assessment. But this performative cynicism, sometimes even arrogance about tests, is a crock. Now let's talk about the tests themselves. If the whole time I was saying the word tests, you thought of multiple choice questions and bubble sheets, then that's on you. 
because I never said that or even implied it. Tests can have some very rich constructed response items, even rich performance tasks, as remember, a performance task is any task or assessment that attempts to emulate the authentic context within which the learning is meant to be applied. You know what engineers do in the real world? They solve equations, either on paper or on their computers. My issue is not with project-based learning or inquiry-based learning or anything like that. My issue is the trading of one exclusion for another. We have to be open to the idea that not every student wants every class to be entirely project-based. They're not less than or lazy or disengaged because of that. That's normal. No adult has passion for everything. Why would we think our students would? If everything is a passion, then nothing is. Sort of like if everything is a priority, then nothing is. Again, I'm not saying this is most students. The vast majority are probably not like this. But when you say, I only do this or I only do that, then you have to be open to at least the potential that you might, in your haste to be inclusive to one group, you might end up being exclusive to another group. Now, if you're hearing all of this as a criticism of PBL or or inquiry-based learning, and that you think that I want us to go back to only using traditional tests, then you haven't heard me. Throughout my entire career, all I've ever heard is we have to stop the pendulum swings in education, and yet we keep doing it. Correcting, if you will, our assessment practices, for me, would be about expansion. It's about opening up the possibilities for students to show what they know in the most expansive way, including culturally expansive ways and, and the various types of formats. But overcorrecting with assessment, which is my concern, is trading one restrictive practice for another and then vilifying those who don't go all in with you uh, to create this sort of us versus them dynamic that is unhelpful. It's not helpful if we do that. The insinuation that the teachers who still use tests are somehow less than, that's, that's just outright arrogant. And honestly, I'm just tired of these virtual cliques that keep forming online. Like, we're the ones who get it. The others, the other Neanderthals, they don't get it. Look, on the net, I love where we are with so many teachers being open to more expansive assessment practices and providing students with real and meaningful agency over how they demonstrate their learning. Collectively, there is, of course, still more to do and a ways to go, sure. But we're in a much better place than I would have said we were five to ten years ago. We've made tremendous progress. It's, it's amazing, and I love what's happening. If we just correct and avoid the overcorrections in our assessment practices, I think we'll have a much healthier discourse about how assessment can be used both to drive and to verify student learning. Okay, that's it for this week. Yes, great to be back with you. Uh, remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got suggestions or questions for Assessment Corner. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Monica Burns. Monica is a former New York City public school teacher and is now an ed tech expert. She is the host of the Easy Ed Tech podcast. So, of course, We'll be focusing on ed tech next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. But you can now do that on Spotify as well. So if you listen to the podcast on Spotify, a rating there would also be most appreciated. 
And if you like what you hear and are so inclined, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or even on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>